It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Jimmy Fallon. I'm Ainsley Earhart. I'm Bill Hemmer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Do recent university campus protests against Israel and Jewish students highlight what some Republicans see as a trend toward teaching so-called woke ideology in higher education? Look at the universities right now. We're seeing the rabid anti-Israel, anti-Semitic hatred that is boiling over with the war in the Middle East. And it makes you wonder, what are they teaching at these institutions? We speak with Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz. I'm Dave Anthony. The Supreme Court is considering yet another Second Amendment case. If it's unconstitutional to block somebody under a domestic violence restraining order from having a gun. They're arguing this case to a court that's more open than people suggest to limitations. Uh, This is by no means a lock. Uh, for the gun industry. And I'm Carol Markowitz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. In this year before an election year, as Republican candidates began announcing that they would run for president, the pollsters moved into a higher gear and in some cases started asking Americans how they feel about some cultural issues, the kinds Republicans often feel are divisive. At the end of July, a New York Times-Siena College poll asked Republicans, who would you rather have, a candidate who focuses on defeating radical woke ideology in our schools, media, and culture, woke is in quotes, or a candidate who focuses on restoring law and order in our streets and at the border. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. Despite the popularity of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, where he won re-election last year by double digits, just 24% in the poll chose the anti-woke candidate, compared with 65% who went with the law and order candidate. Even earlier in the year, a USA Today Ipsos poll found 56% of respondents had a positive view of the word woke, finding it to mean informed, educated on, and aware of social injustices. 39% had a negative view, finding it to mean being overly politically correct and to result in policing others' words. But with the popularity of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI programs from the classrooms to corporate boardrooms, some Republicans insist something deeper and troubling is going on. So it starts, chapter one, is the universities. And and I call the universities the Wuhan lab of the woke virus. It's where the virus was created, it's where it mutated, and it's where it spread. Ted Cruz is a Republican senator from Texas and author of the new book, Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. And originally it was just plain vanilla Marxism of professors that viewed the world as an inevitable conflict between oppressors and victims. And, And the prism for oppressors and victims was socioeconomic. It was the owners of capital versus the workers, the proletariat. And the answer was a violent revolution where the proletariat overthrows the owners of capital, seizes it from them, and takes it and redistributes that to themselves. That's, that's the original version of capitalism. What happened, and, and, and really ground zero for this, was, was my alma mater. It was Harvard. The Marxist world lens was then applied to a whole bunch of different attributes. So the same oppressor victim scheme 
moved to race and gender and sexual orientation. And the idea was the same. The world is inevitably a conflict between oppressors and victims. And the answer is to use force to tear down the oppressors and elevate the victims. And you're seeing it now that this view, it started in the universities, then it spread to K through 12 education, which is the next chapter. It spread to journalism. It spread to big business and big tech and entertainment and science. And in each of these, you see that this was actually a deliberate strategy. If you look at the Marxist scholars in the 1960s, they realized that that physical violence, things like like the violent riots at the 1968 Democratic Convention were turning the American people off, that it wasn't working in America to 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 be doing things like the weather underground bombing the Pentagon, that that was having the effect of turning the people away from them. And so they instead began what they called the long, slow march through institutions to go within the institutions and take them over from the inside. And we're seeing this in every major institution. This book explains how and why and how to fight back. What is bothering you the most now that when you look around right now, what would you say is an example of of the problem because right now we're speaking in sort of broad terms right that this is in the universities and this is sort of a lens that's being applied to sort of every group what what are you seeing right now i guess that would bother you the most or that you would say see that that's what i'm talking about well listen if you look at the universities right now we're seeing the rabid anti-israel anti-semitic hatred that is boiling over with the war in the middle east we're seeing these vicious protests we're seeing Jewish students having to hide in the library, be locked away for fears of violence. We're seeing Jewish students being physically assaulted. My alma mater, Harvard, we we saw 35 student groups put out a statement that said all of the violence in Israel, all of the, the, the civilians that Hamas targeted and murdered, the women and children that they violently raped, all of that was Israel's fault. I mean, it's a statement that is absurd, it, it, it is grossly anti-Semitic, and it makes you wonder, what are they teaching at the, these institutions? And the reason they're teaching that is that's the Marxist worldview. In, in, for, for the radical left, Jews are, are considered oppressors, and the Palestinians are the victims. And the answer, the answer to the Marxist is always violent overthrow. The murder of Jews to the Marxist view is perfectly right and justified, and it's why they're celebrating on college campuses. Look, journalism. Uh, you, the, the world of journalism and the corporate media has been largely destroyed. I have a whole chapter on journalism, and it's intimately connected to what Hamas is doing. As you know, I do a podcast every week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's called Verdict with Ted Cruz. Hmm. Just recently, I did a podcast entitled CNN is Hamas's Air Force. So is MSNBC, so is ABC. Here's the evidence. And the, and the podcast, I went through just about a dozen different things that each of those networks had covered, where they were just repeating Hamas's propaganda. They were actively lying. You remember all the stories about Israel bombed a hospital in Gaza, killing right. 500 Palestinians. Turns out that was an absolute lie, that it was a Palestinian terrorist whose rocket went off course and hit the parking lot of their own hospital. But Hamas knows that it can't defeat Israel on its own. Integral to its battle plan is the corporate media, is the fact that the global media is so corrupt that they will repeat their propaganda and use it to demonize Israel. And so you see 
the intersection between between the universities and between journalism playing out in, in real time right now. Senator, you know, there are those who say they are fighting against racism that is ingrained in the system. And the only way to fight for victims or those who are oppressed, as you've noted, is to demand equity, to demand a different sort of opportunity to succeed. And that means holding back some groups or making some groups lose out on opportunities so that they can succeed. What do you say to those who insist that equity is the way to lift people up? Well, I'd say a couple of things. Number one, in in the context of of Israel and the Palestinians, it's not discrimination they're fighting against because you're never justified to seek out and murder civilians. What the Hamas terrorists did starting on October 7th is they sent death squads and they went from house to house to house targeting civilians, looking for elderly people, looking for women and children, and they murdered them because they were Jews. These were not soldiers. These were not military targets. These were innocent civilians. They took women, they took little girls, and they violently raped them. They dragged them out into the public streets. They, they beheaded and burned alive infants. That is not fighting against discrimination. That is evil. And in fact, those are Nazi tactics carried out for Nazi purposes. The reason those people were murdered is not that they'd done anything to those Hamas terrorists. They were murdered because they were Jews. And October 7th, was the single greatest day of mass murder of Jews since the Holocaust. So the radical left, and by the way, a lot of the radical left in the United States, including the squad in Congress, celebrated, refuses to condemn these grotesque acts of of terror. Now, you also asked about here in the United States the phrase equity, and I break out one of the things that, that, that Marxists are very good at doing is playing with language which is equity sounds like something that's very good. It sounds like equality. Equality is something we agree with. But equity in in the radical's mind is the exact opposite of equality. Equality means protecting everyone's rights equally, fighting against discrimination. That's the vision of America. The vision of the cultural Marxist is the opposite, which is government needs to discriminate. It needs to tear down the people who they decide are oppressors, And it needs to forcibly elevate the victims. And it doesn't matter. Merit doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter. What matters is America is perpetually at war and they've decided one side must win no matter what. That is that is a profoundly illiberal view of history. It is a dishonest view of history. And and I think it's a really dangerous view of our country. One of the more recent data points on how Americans feel about socialism and capitalism, it comes from Pew, August of 2022. 36% have a very or somewhat positive view of socialism, but that was down six points compared to three years prior. Good feelings, however, toward capitalism have also declined. 57% felt very or somewhat good about capitalism, and that was down eight points compared to three years prior. Is it not just that a case should be made in your mind against socialism, but that one needs to be made for capitalism. If there's an intersection between cultural Marxism in your mind and money um, and and the haves and the have nots, I I wonder what you would say on that front in terms of, of feelings about socialism versus capitalism, especially among younger voters. If you look at capitalism versus socialism, Part of the reason people have those attitudes is our schools, our universities and our K through 12 are brainwashing kids. They're telling kids America is evil and oppressive and inevitable and, and 
indelibly racist. This is critical race theory that has crept into schools, and I describe how it has done so. And, and, and look, if you look at socialism, socialism and, and communism have produced more misery, more suffering, more death, more poverty than any economic system in the history of the world. If you go down to Key West, since I'm Cuban-American, the thing liberals never seem to understand, the rafts are all going in one direction. Nobody is getting on a raft in Florida and heading 90 miles south to the socialist paradise that is Cuba because people are starving and they have no rights and they are treated like cattle down there. It, it is miserable. The American free enterprise system has been the greatest engine for prosperity, for opportunity that the world has ever seen. The reason people from all over the world want to come here is you can come here like my dad did with nothing, not speaking English with $100 in his underwear, and you can succeed. You can achieve the American dream. And, and look, for me, this topic, this battle is very personal. My father fought in the Cuban Revolution. My family has seen communism firsthand, has been imprisoned, has been tortured by the communist. And, 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 and so I understand exactly what this is. But the book, you know, the book is designed to be very readable. It's not some academic treatise. It tells stories. Because if you love America, if you love freedom, if you love the Constitution, you're horrified at what is happening to our institutions. This book is a roadmap to say, this is how we save our nation together. And so it's fun, it's readable, and I would encourage your viewers, go and buy Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. You can buy it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books a Million or wherever you get your books. I think you'll enjoy it, and it'll also make a great Christmas gift. <laughs> it was fun how you opened the book with your family and your father and how he taught himself English. I mean, it, 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 you're right. It, it does read like a story and not an academic treatise. Senator Ted Cruz, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This is Carol Markowitz with your Fox News commentary coming up. How far can the government go? Keeping guns out of the hands of certain people. I can't believe I'm once again in front of the Supreme Court fighting to uphold basic constitutional protections that we know save lives. Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell at a demonstration outside the court before justices considered a case that pits the rights of those facing domestic violence threats against Second Amendment rights. We know perpetrators of violence use firearms to exert power and control over their victims. At issue, a 1994 federal law that bars anyone under a domestic violence restraining order from having a gun. Challenged by a Texas man, Zaki Rahimi, who pleaded guilty to illegally having firearms while under a protective order after being accused in five different shooting incidents in 2020 and 2021. His attorney, J. Matthew Wright, argued to the court at Tuesday's hearing the law imposed very consequential actions that go against an individual's fundamental right to keep arms of citizenship. Chief Justice John Roberts asked him, You don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, the I moment, mean, someone who's shooting, uh, uh, you know, at people, uh, that's a good start. So, so <laughs> that's fair. 
and Wright faced similar scrutiny from other justices in questions a year after another key Supreme Court gun rights decision. It's clear that the court wants to finish its work here and to take an area that was long mired in 5-4 decisions and bring an element of clarity. Jonathan Turley is a constitutional expert, a law professor at George Washington University and a Fox News contributor. It's often the case that the justices after a major decision will take a breather. You know, they'll just decline to hear cases to let things settle. Uh, that's not the case here. Well, one of the stories that I read describing what this case is said that the decision last year, which I want you to explain, set a situation up where there are now new tests for assessing gun laws. And the, the story said, which has sparked confusion and frustration among the nation's federal judges. Do you agree with that? I'm not sure how much confusion there is. I mean, but what pre-existed was a series of cases that were often conflicted. Uh, so it's not like we had years of clarity. After the court ruled in Heller, there was now an individual right to bear arms that had to be resolved. In Heller, the Supreme Court did accept that this right is not absolute. There are no truly absolute rights in the Constitution. But the court then a year ago in uh, Bruhn uh, ruled that the review of limitations on gun ownership would begin with a historical analysis, whether these types of limitations were historically recognized uh, at the time of the Second Amendment. That historical analysis didn't start in Brune, but it, it has existed in other cases. But there's no question that the majority of the court has moved to the right and tends to put greater emphasis both on the text of the Constitution and the history behind these amendments. Okay. So the question really here in Rahimi is whether a, a state has the authority to bar certain groups of people from possessing guns. Uh, and the Fifth Circuit in this case found that historically, uh, this type of ban uh, was not recognized when the Second Amendment was drafted and ratified. Okay, now in this case, the man who challenged this Texas law, Zaki Rahimi, he pleaded guilty. He had guns taken away from him. He was under a domestic order, and they found he illegally had these guns. But then he challenged this case, and then the conviction was thrown out. There's also another case that is working towards the Supreme Court, very similar to this, where someone was denied gun ownership because he was found with marijuana uh, after a car stop. And that constituted drug use under the uh, state law and was also denied uh, possession of a gun. So we the court is being asked here to try to uh, illuminate where this line may be. Uh, under what circumstances can citizens be denied uh, the, a possession of a weapon? Okay. We are in an era where we've had you know more mass shootings in the last several years. People want to, you know, constantly saying what could have been done to prevent it. Like we had the shooting in Maine. Mental health issues were involved. Now, in this instance, there are 
Victims' rights advocates who say the presence of a gun leads to a 500% increased risk of homicide for women in domestic violence situations. If the Supreme Court were to allow someone who is under a restraining order to have a gun, people might say, well, why would we let people like that have a weapon? No, that's a fair argument. And part of the argument here is that historically uh, there wasn't any domestic violence restraining orders that uh, were prevalent or existed in early U.S. history. And this is going to now force great stress upon the court's use of this historical analysis, because what do you do? Uh, I think the vast majority of citizens actually would view uh, the denial of possession of a gun for someone with this type of protective order as being sound public policy. And the mere fact that you didn't have domestic violence orders back then ignores the fact that women were disenfranchised in a lot of respects. They couldn't even vote back then. So, you know, how does the court then respond to that? And I, I think that there is a there is obviously a good faith arguments be made there. Keep in mind that there are members on the conservative side of the court who have indicated that they do see the room for compromise, the sort of room at the elbows of the Second Amendment. That includes Chief Justice Roberts and uh, Associate Justice Kavanaugh. It also may include Associate Justice Barrett. So they're, they're arguing this case to a court that's more open than people suggest to limitations. Uh, this is by no means a lock uh, for the gun industry. Do you think they'll modify what they did last year with Bruin and, and the test they put in place? Might they modify what they mean by historical analogs or whatever it is? Well, that would be a slight modification, but more of a narrow exception approach. Uh, so they could indeed tack on this type of exception to Bruin. Uh, they have other cases that are going to be coming up uh, before the court, and they just accepted a couple of gun cases. So they're going all in. Uh, there's the NRA versus Vala, which is a free speech case out of New York, and whether you can effectively blacklist the National Rifle Association. There's Garland versus Cargill, which deals with uh, a ban on, on bump stocks, a uh, device that uh, can allow people to shoot at a higher rate uh, with, with weapons. Yeah, so that was in the Las is, Vegas massacre, I think, right? In 2017, I think it was. Right. And then there's also a new Seventh Circuit decision that just came down that upheld an AR-15 ban in Illinois. So you have two cases on the docket. You've got a number of cases that are knocking on the door. So th this could be a very significant term for the Second Amendment. And this will not be the only opportunity that they have to more delineate these lines in, under the Second Amendment. Right. What about red flag or, or yellow flag laws that aim to take guns away from those who might be considered a risk to themselves or others for, say, mental health? Do you think that the court's going to have to take up a case like that soon? It could. And once again, the question is, does the court want to carve out a few narrow exceptions uh, because early law didn't address some of these issues uh, or did not show the same protective 
uh, policies that we have today. And so they, it is possible that they can do that. You know, what part of the problem here, I think, is that you have states, particularly New York, uh, that often drives these cases. New York has a long history of passing absurdly broad laws that are almost guaranteed to be overturned. And the result is that it's God's gift to the NRA. You know, they I, I can't imagine that they're anything but delighted when New York passes these laws because uh, they they really present easy targets, no pun intended, for Second Amendment challenges. Uh, so, you know, if if states unlike New York would actually try to create modest limitations, I think they're going to find a highly receptive court, particularly with the additional votes of Roberts and Kavanaugh joining those on the left of the court. Yeah, uh, it's just that states like New York aren't doing that. You know, they're 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 driven more by that sort of appeal to the local politics and not very strategically. Uh, so I think we're going to see all of these cases go forward. You're going to have more New York cases that tend to, to drive further protections for under the Second Amendment. But you also see some of these cases. Uh, this is a difficult case, uh, and the court accepted it. And I think the only reason that they would have accepted it is that they see an opportunity to delineate a clearer line under the Second Amendment. Yeah, I, this one's out of Texas, and maybe it is that the justices don't want to have a situation where someone under a restraining order they allowed to have a gun and something horrible happened. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I think they're that, people. I, think, I mean, they don't want that on their conscience, I would I would imagine. Well, the court has been saying for years that it does not view this as an absolute right. Uh, and, you know, I do question that, you know, people who say, oh, look, the court has created a mess. There's never been so much confusion. Uh, there's less confusion about this right now than there was before Heller. Now, it's, it's, the clarity is not welcomed uh, because the court said conclusively and, and with finality, this is an individual right. Uh, we are still in that post-Heller process. I mean, because you're talking about other rights like free speech and the right to free exercise that have been the subject of court decisions for many, many decades. Um, the Second Amendment, even though it's an old right, was only recognized as an individual right under Heller. So it has it's a relatively new body of precedent that the court is still developing. Jonathan Turley, Fox News contributor, constitutional expert, professor of public interest law, George Washington University. Great to have you back on. Thank you very much for joining us. My great pleasure. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Harold Markowitz. What's on your mind? When a tragedy happens, there are inevitably a rush of how to talk to your children articles about how to break down what happened into manageable, kid-appropriate language. Jews right now are facing a different issue, how not to talk to your kids about what happened on October 7th when it's all you want to talk about. 
How do we move on with life? Yell at the kids to put on their shoes or do their homework while also hugging them too often in our despair for the people whose lives cannot move on. We are consumed by it. Jews around the world who don't know each other are all posting the same thing. We haven't slept since that Saturday. We see each other and our eyes are wide saucers, dark circles, full of pain. We refresh the news and absorb new horrifying details. We consider where we can no longer send our Jewish children to college, which countries we can no longer visit. We pass around the familiar stories of Jewish-owned businesses targeted, Jews shouted at, Jews chased, Jews beaten. We parse which friends are suddenly not. We think about which of our neighbors would happily load us on a train. How do we protect our children from our despair and rage, but also our fear? My own children are blessedly too young for most of it. They know something bad happened and they know Israel is at war. The eldest at 13 knows there was an attack in Southern Israel where many died, knows hostages were taken, but not much else. I don't want her to know about the rapes, the details I can't unknow about the way children who look just like her were killed. In a few years, she will be going to music festivals. I don't want her to live a life of fear, worried that someone is coming to kill her. I don't want her to know that monsters live on the earth with us and what they're capable of doing. Our sons are 10 and 7. The eldest boy is a history buff. He knows about historical atrocities. He's read about torture. But he's still a baby who calls for me when he's sick, reaches for me when he's hurt. I don't want him knowing that kids were stolen while screaming for their mama, that their parents could not save them. I don't want him to hear that parents were killed in front of their children and children in front of their parents. And that's before the truly gruesome particulars. I don't want him to also not be able to sleep at night thinking of beheaded, burned, baked babies. I want him to believe it when I say I will always protect them, that no one is getting by me. I want to believe it too. The youngest is too young for any of it. Israel is a faraway land he doesn't know. He knows he has family there, but still can't quite put together who is related to who. His grandmother's twin, her husband, her children and grandchildren. We go over the connections to him. He doesn't know Israel is a safe haven for Jews around the world who are just like him. I'll tell him someday about the hatred and the violence. But when I look at his sweet, innocent face, I think not yet. Not telling them anything is no cure either. It's my life goal to not raise my children to feel so blindly privileged. It was the luckiest twist of fate that they were born Jews in America, and I will not let them forget that. I want to tell them the truth, that we're mostly alone in the world, that most people will not stand up for you. That will include their fellow Jews who had spoken up for others, posted all the right things, but when they see their own comrades are against them, they will quiet and shrink from view until they nearly disappear. But if you do life right, there will be people who do reach out to you in bad times like these and offer support. They will pray for you, offer you safety should you need it, say the words to defend you and feel your fear. I don't say all this. I tell them for the fifth time to get their cleats on and to put their plate in the sink. I try not to show the darkness I'm feeling. They'll know it all someday. It can wait. This is Carol Markowitz, columnist for the New York Post and foxnews.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast, bringing you closer to the story than you ever thought possible. Subscribe at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. These are the stories that keep you up at night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.